Hello and a very happy new year from the Jodcast. January is a very special month for us as the 14th will be the 10 year anniversary of the very first episode. To commemorate the show's 10 year history, we'll be hosting a live recording of the show at Jodrell Bank Observatory on the 28th of February at 2pm. We have some very special guests, all of whom will be familiar voices from the Jodcast past, both recent and distant, and we'd love for you to come and help us celebrate. If you'd like to come to the show, please mark the date in your calendars and we'll let you know as soon as free tickets become available. Until then, on with the show. The Jodcast. Visiting Enceladus one last time. Until the next time. With George Bendo, Therese Cantwell, Haritina Mogashanu, Ian Morrison and Benjamin Shaw. The Jodcast. January 2016 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Ben and joining me in the studio is George. Hi George. Hello. So there's just us today, pretty much in the whole department apart from two other people, the building is dead. But the Jodcast must go on. We have no news this month, but as usual, Ian Morrison and Haratina Mogashanu take a look at what's happening in the January night sky. But before that, Therese interviews Dr Judith Croston on assessing the impact of the radio galaxy population. Uh, So I'm here today with Judith Croston, who's a lecturer at University of Southampton and is in charge of continuing education courses in physics and astronomy in Cambridge. And uh, Judith's here to talk to us today about radio galaxies and their role in um, the formation of the universe. Uh, So I suppose if you want to start by telling us what a radio galaxy actually is. Sure, yes. Um, Okay, so uh, radio galaxies are a type of galaxy that's actually been known about for quite a long time. They were one of the first things that were found when people first started building radio telescopes. Uh, But we now know a fair bit about how they actually work. So um, what they are are uh, galaxies where um, there is a central supermassive black hole, as in many other galaxies. Uh, But in these galaxies... um, uh, for some, uh, for, for for a variety of possible reasons, uh, what's um, what's happening is that um, powerful jets of matter, which are travelling close to the speed of light, are actually being um, pushed out from somewhere very close uh, to this supermassive black hole, and these jets can actually travel out for a very long distance, so out into the surrounding galaxy and even beyond. Uh, and they produce radio emission because they've got very energetic particles in them, uh, and that's um, that's why we know that they're out there doing strange things. <laughs> so, do every does every galaxy have um, these jets coming out um, from the centre? No, so they're sort of comparatively uh, unusual. At least um, the most powerful sorts of jets are pretty rare. Uh, they're found uh, in a fairly small fraction of galaxies uh, overall, uh, but they. They're they're much more common in really big galaxies uh, and in galaxies that are found in in clusters, so in places where there are lots of lots of galaxies bound bound together by gravity. So for particular sorts of galaxies, um, they seem to be something quite quite important, quite quite common. So why are you interested in studying these kinds of sources then? Uh, well, uh, the reason that I think they're particularly interesting is that, um, well, firstly, they're very pretty. So if you actually um, go and go and Google for a picture of a radio galaxy, you'll find some, some very nice pictures. Uh, but also, they seem to be doing quite uh, interesting things to the environments in which they live. Uh, one of the things that's, um, that's very interesting about these jets is that in recent years, it's become clear that uh, 
they're quite important for the process of how galaxies grow. So um, they they get their energy from matter that's falling in onto uh, the black hole, but they can then take that energy and push it out into the into the galaxy and into the the surrounding um, matter even beyond the galaxy. And what that can do is that it can actually heat up the gas in the galaxy. And and if you have gas that's really hot, then it can't form stars. So that the point is that that jets seem to stop stars from forming. Uh, in in very big galaxies, and it, it now seems to be the case that, um, or in, it's now known that uh, that this process seems to help to explain why um, the range of galaxies that we see out there um, look the way that they do. So why um, why there seems to be a sort of mass scale that galaxies can't get beyond at a certain point, they just stop getting bigger. There are, there aren't so many really big galaxies as we might might think there should be, and that's because the jets seem to be stopping stopping the stars from forming. How do we know how many big galaxies we would have expected because you said that you that we know that they're they're imposing a cut off on the size of size of galaxies so how, why did we think there should have been uh, yeah okay so um the 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 idea sort of the theories of how how galaxies actually grow uh, and form have been sort of developed over quite a long long time um people have been trying to understand uh, how our own galaxy formed and and since since the 1950s there've been competing ideas about whether galaxies um, are formed by one enormous great cloud of gas somehow collapsing down to form a galaxy, or whether um, small clumps of galaxies merge together and galaxies sort of grow in in, in fits and starts with with little bits um, coming together. But um, but the current sort of best best ideas about how galaxies form come from a combination of different things. Um, uh, just simply simply the theory doing 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 equations on on a piece of paper about how gravity will pull matter together. Uh, the the real sort of cutting edge way of studying how galaxies form these days is to do. Um, large computer simulations uh, and to start off by just taking dark matter which we think forms most of the matter in the universe and allowing gravity to pull it together and to make uh, clumps that get increasingly larger as more and more clumps join together uh, and then within that dark matter uh, gas starts to collapse and that eventually forms galaxies uh, and there there are now some really sophisticated um, simulations of how this process works and they take into account all sorts of different complicated bits of physics that seem to be relevant uh, and and are actually able to reproduce the, um, uh, the the sort of the numbers of galaxies, all sorts of different observations, the numbers of galaxies there are out there, what colours they are, what sorts of stars they have in them, and, and so on. So we know from simulations that we need radio galaxies to reproduce the number on the the types of galaxies that we see in the universe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they seem to be a pretty essential ingredient in in those models. Yeah. So. Can we actually see that happening? Are there ways we can actually see radial galaxies changing the formation of galaxies or clusters of galaxies? Uh, yeah, so so there are lots of, um, well, there are quite a few different ways of directly looking at the, the impact of, of radio galaxies. Um, one of them is to, um, is to look at um, the hot gas. So galaxies, and, and in particular on, on, on bigger scales, clusters of galaxies have a lot of hot gas in them, and we can look at that with an X-ray telescope. Uh, and when we do that, we actually see, we can directly see that that gas is being pushed around by the jet. So we can see places where that gas has been squashed together um, to form a sort of shock front. Uh, and we can see places where um, where the jets have, have sort of pushed the gas away and so there's less gas in that particular place. So that gives us... Um, some information about where the energy from the from the jets is going and 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 the fact that it's 
it's affecting the galaxies. Uh, and and we, there's also sort of more indirect evidence uh, because um, all of the hot gas in galaxy clusters is actually um, sort of is losing a lot of energy because it's uh, emitting X-rays and X-rays carry quite a lot of energy away. And in places where we see radio galaxies, we also see a lot of energy being lost uh, and yet that's not causing the galaxies to form to form stars. So you can sort of put together all of those pieces of the, the puzzle. So are radio galaxies, do they, are they all the same? Do they all, do they all share the same properties? Do they all just look similar? Uh, well, no. So there are a few different ways of, of, of sort of trying to break down radio galaxies into different different categories, which seem to behave a bit differently. Uh, so since the 1970s, it's been known that there are two different types of jets. So you get um, uh, one sort of jet where, where you can usually see two jets going off in opposite directions. Uh, and um, and we think that those jets are uh, are fairly uh, comparatively slow. So all of all of the jets probably start off travelling close to the speed of light. Um, but in these um, radio galaxies, which are actually a bit less bright, the jets seem to uh, seem to slow down. Uh, whereas um, there's another there's another type of jet which looks a bit different. And and in these ones, you tend to only see one jet. Uh, but that's not because the other jet isn't there. It's actually an interesting effect of of special relativity, uh, and that tells us that the jets are moving pretty fast. Um, Otherwise, you would actually see as you'd actually see two jets. Uh, so these are two different types, um, and 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 it's thought to be to do with how fast the jet is moving, um, and possibly maybe what type of um, what type of galaxy it's it's travelling out into. It turns out, um, sort of separately to this, there are also different ways of powering the jet in the first place. So the way that these jets are made, as I said, is to do with gas um, falling in onto the the central supermassive black hole and it turns out that there are probably two different ways that this can happen uh, and that they, they that might happen in different sorts of galaxies uh, at different times uh, so this all adds up to a sort of fairly complicated picture of how different types of jets possibly affect the process of how, how the galaxies form so they're called radio galaxies obviously because they were discovered in the radio but is it possible to see them in other wavelengths so can, for instance can you see them in the x-ray or can we take can you point a normal optical telescope at one of these objects and would you see anything there uh, yes so uh so you can um you can see uh, some of these jets you can see both with optical telescopes and um in the infrared and with x-ray telescopes uh, so in the optical part of the spectrum what's tricky is that there's a lot of starlight in the galaxies and that tends to uh, tends to get in the way so we do know of some jets uh, where you can see um, where you can see the jet not just in radio, but you can also see an, a linear ray that's related to the jet, and you can see the optical emission from it as well. And in fact, the first jet to ever be discovered was actually discovered as an optical jet, not as a uh, as a radio jet. Uh, but at the time, they really didn't have any idea what it was. This was in 1918, actually. Uh, so um, so they can be seen in the optical, but it's it's relatively difficult to do. And so it's harder to measure what's going on if you use observations with an optical telescope. Uh, and a lot of them also produce um, X-rays. And this is actually one of the main things that I look at um, with my research. So you can get X-rays from uh, from the jets, uh, as well as, as I said earlier, you can get uh, you can look at the X-rays um, from the hot gas that's that's sort of permeating the space in between galaxies uh, in galaxy clusters. So um, so X-rays are actually a really interesting way of trying to understand what's going on with radio galaxies because you can study the, the, the jets themselves and also the, the, the places where the jets are, are having their impact, where they're putting their energy. If the jets, if you're studying the X-ray from the radio galaxies themselves um, and these objects are embedded in some 
some other X-ray emitting source, does that make it very difficult to actually to make your measurements then? Yes, yes, it definitely does. So uh, there are a couple of different ways that you can uh, try to figure out what which X-rays are coming from the jets themselves and which X-rays are coming from the from the hot gas. And um, one is by um, looking at the the spectrum, which is a, which is basically how the how the X-ray light is is distributed how much light is coming out at different energies or different um, wavelengths. Uh, And you can look for signs that what you're seeing is hot gas. Or in contrast, if you're looking at the jet, perhaps there are signs that what you're seeing is some other sort of process that's producing producing X-rays from very energetic particles in a jet. So that's one way. Uh, And the other way is just um, because if you already know where the where the jet is, uh, because you know you know what it looks like in the radio, uh, you can you can look for um, features that, that that show you that perhaps the, the where the jet is is a bit brighter. So you can see the sort of background from from the hot gas, but on top of that, there's brighter emission that must be somehow associated with the with the jet. But so, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it never is. <laughs> um, so we seem to know quite a lot about radio galaxies. We seem to know a lot about what they're doing and what they're interacting with. So are there do we do we know everything there's to know now or or is there still more work to do? <laughs> no, we definitely don't. So a lot of what we know at the moment is about jets um in the very nearby universe uh, and it seems that uh, in the very nearby universe they're having an important effect on on the big galaxies. We know fairly little about what they could be doing uh in the early early stages of the universe at the time when when um most of the stars were actually forming in galaxies perhaps when um when the clusters and groups of galaxies were coming together and um and that that's possibly uh something that's quite interesting and that's something that we might be able to find out more about in the future with um with new um really powerful um radio surveys with some of the new radio facilities that are coming online there's the um the lofar radio telescope based in in the netherlands very soon uh we'll have a much um better idea of what the jets are doing at um at at the time when when galaxies were really um were really growing and forming uh, and uh, and that will uh, that will be very useful but the other thing that we don't know very much about is where it is that the jets live so again we mostly know we know mostly have that information for very nearby objects uh, and that's something again where future facilities can can give us a lot more a lot more information so that we can try to figure out not just what jets are doing in the very recent past but but whether they played an important part in 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 how the first galaxies came came together and uh, and how and how the first galaxies and black holes grew so you mentioned a uh, future facility so one that i know is coming up is um a new X-ray telescope, I think it's Athena. Yeah, so Athena is um, Europe's next generation X-ray observatory and it's um, it was recently um, selected by the European Space Agency um, to be um, one of its next big facilities. Unfortunately, it's not launching until 2028, which, which, is, which is a little bit sad um, because it's going to be pretty revolutionary in helping us understand the places where these jets are important at earlier times. If we want to actually measure this feedback, this, this um, impact that jets are having on galaxies in their early stages of growth, then we will have probably have to wait for Athena to be able to do that directly because it is really the only way of directly seeing the the effect that the jets are having on the on the gas uh, so um so it will be pretty exciting when it happens but there's uh, there's some way to go yet unfortunately <laughs> until we're until we're there so apart from your research into AGN you're also quite involved with um some adult courses in astronomy and physics as well 
Is that right? Uh, yes. So, um, so one of my jobs at the moment is um, is running the uh, continuing education courses at Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education, uh, where we offer quite a few different interesting courses in astronomy. Uh, and in particular, um, we do uh, residential weekend courses for adults, which are rather fun. I've just um, recently done one on on galaxies, where uh, where you can spend a whole weekend staying in a in a nice um, stately home and and learning about a, a topic in in astronomy. And we also do um, year long courses actually for credit at first year undergraduate level so we do certificates in astronomy and and, and physics and and so on uh, so uh, so if uh, if any of the listeners are interested in uh, in studying astronomy then do do have a look because um it's quite a fun uh, fun thing to to do so thanks very much for joining us today on the jobcast judith it's been lovely talking to you thanks very much therese thanks for that therese now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else the odds and ends George, you've been on some travels recently. Yes, I've been in Hawaii. I was working at the uh, James Clerk Maxwell Telescope on Mauna Kea. In some ways, I was actually uh, very fortunate not to witness events there. The big news coming out of Hawaii in astronomy is that uh, there was a decision by the Hawaii State Supreme Court which uh, overturned the land use permit for the construction of the Thurimir telescope near the summit of Mauna Kea. The issue is that the Board of Land and Natural Resources uh, violated their own permit application process in that they approved the construction permit and then they held what's called a contested case hearing. Uh, which was uh, a hearing or a series of hearings to uh, gather commentary from uh, the general population uh, about the use of uh, Mauna Kea uh, before uh, granting the permit. If the astronomers decide to proceed forward, uh, they will uh, have to go through the permit application process again. It's worthwhile pointing out that the uh, use of uh, Mauna Kea by astronomers has been plagued with controversy for at least a couple of decades now. I was a postgraduate student at the University of Hawaii from 1996 to 2002. When I was a student there, I saw protests over the use and the treatment of Mauna Kea uh, flare up at that time, but it was uh, nothing like what's been happening in the past year. Long-term issues are that back in the 80s and 90s, people in Native Hawaiian and environmentalist groups uh, became concerned over the unregulated development of Mauna Kea and the uh, destruction of, of cultural and natural sites on and near the summit of Mauna Kea. Those concerns were at first largely ignored by astronomers in the University of Hawaii, who at that time was responsible for managing the mountain. Things kind of came to a head kind of around the year 2000, when the former director for the Institute for Astronomy, Don Hall, uh, had been fired from his position and uh, for multiple years uh, the position was filled by uh, an interim director. And second, there was creation of a new 25-year master plan uh, for the summit. A lot of people saw this as a point in time when they could voice their concerns uh, about how 
uh, things were being managed. When I left, I had the impression that uh, the astronomy community had actually made a lot of progress in terms of uh, addressing a lot of these concerns. They had done a lot of outreach in the community, including on the Big Island of Hawaii, to uh, discuss what they were doing in astronomy, how it was important, trying to engage the local community much more than they had been doing previously. There was certainly much more effort to address uh, issues related to minimizing the degradation of the natural environment and to uh, respect cultural sites. Uh, however, it was uh, kind of apparent, uh, given events this year, that those efforts uh, were not sufficient to satisfy all people. When the 30-meter telescope attempted to begin construction on the 31st of March, uh, they were blocked by protesters, and the protesters uh, maintained a uh, strong presence on Mauna up until the uh, 6th of December this year. At one point, they had blocked the road with boulders to uh, prevent construction equipment getting to the site. There were people who were arrested. In some cases, people uh, in the police force were arresting their friends who were uh, among the protesters. There were also various uh, legal challenges that were made uh, to the construction of the telescope. Uh, the one that's uh, most recently been successful is this one, where there was a decision made at the beginning of December to halt uh, construction of the telescope. So following that, it's uh, there was a celebration among the protesters on Maikea, which included a lot of singing. This just seems distressing to me. I don't necessarily think of what I do personally as something which causes is is meant to offend people, and uh, just seeing people or reading about people celebrating, they've been able to keep uh, astronomers out. They have certainly attracted uh, this level of protest. It's all just a very sad situation for me. I was lucky when I was there to uh, avoid uh, the protesters. I didn't actually see any protesters, and that's because I arrived after the uh, court decision had been made and after the protesters had decided that uh, their job was done and they had held their celebration. Still, uh, I could see quite a few of the after-effects of this. There were uh, multiple security guards around. Sometimes there, it seemed like there were more security guards around than there were visiting observers working at the telescopes. There's also a, uh, a Halley and an Ahu. The Halley is a term for a house. In this case, it was uh, kind of like a uh, house made of uh, traditional uh, materials, which is built across the street from the dorms where the uh, astronomers sleep. And, and Ahu is a traditional type of mound, uh, typically built with rock. This one was built more with dirt, but had some rock on top, which was also built across the street, which was a symbol of protest against the development. And there were also uh, Ahu built at the summit of Mauna Kea on the site for the 30-meter telescope. Uh, by the Hawaiian activists uh, in some ways, just daring them to come and destroy Hawaiian culture. It's all very dark and confrontational. I'm just glad my science uh, has very little to do with Hawaii these days. I'm much more involved with uh, telescopes in Chile. As far as I know, the people in Chile are much more welcoming. People in Chile seem to be getting 
more fair treatment. Did you manage to achieve the science you went there to do this December? Well, that's a separate discussion, and uh, I was actually uh, sent there by my supervisor, Gary Fuller, on a uh, separate project, which uh, I had no uh, main scientific interest in. But the instrument that I was supposed to be working with wasn't working. Uh, so I ended up doing uh, service observations for other projects with different uh, telescope instrument, although I was at least able to uh, prepare the observations for the project, which I was originally sent out there to work on with the help of uh, staff at the observatory. Right. Well, thanks for that, George. Um, it doesn't sound like a great situation, but hopefully things will improve. And now on to my odd and end, which also is a little bit sad. On Saturday, December the 19th, Cassini made its final close pass to Enceladus, at an altitude of about 3,100 miles above the surface, and it took the last of 10 years' worth of images of this weird little moon. There are some truly stunning images of the colossal plumes of what we now know to be water emanating from near the South Pole, taken on either approach or recession from the moon, I'm not sure which, but they show the North Pole, uh, the South Pole um, just spewing out these these beautiful jets. Closer images show the surface in a lot more detail where we can see some tectonic features such as ridges and trenches that show just how active parts of this surface are. Um, one image taken near the North Pole is near what looks like a ridge to the left of which is a relatively smooth area, say for a few stripes, and to the right of this ridge uh, is heavily cratered, showing that it's it's much older terrain. So it's a very dynamic world that we still have so much to learn about, such as does its subsurface ocean actually have any biology in it at all. So Cassini will be monitoring Enceladus from a distance, so we'll still see it in its images, but as far as close-ups are concerned, we've we've had our last. Um, but we'll link to these images in the show notes. They're well worth a look. Is there evidence for tectonic activity or geological activity which uh, renews the uh, surface or changes the surface of Enceladus? So there's a lot of features on Enceladus that are, are, are linear features, lines that look like they're, that the surface has been fractured, so pulled apart. So there is geological activity on this moon for definite, and there is some also some internal heat source that is driving these, these plumes of water. So we know that it's not geologically dead moon. We also know that there is a subsurface ocean underneath it, and we don't know how that's heated, probably due to tidal interactions with Saturn. But there are certain areas of Enceladus that look very old, so the craters are all still there. Uh, very pot-marked, but there are other areas that, that look very fresh, very new, um, and they have these linear features on it that look like things have been pulled apart. That's kind of surprising because uh, usually you'd either get one or the other. You'd either get uh, the surface being uh, constantly reformed, or you would have you'd have a surface which is cratered from about four billion years ago, like in the case of uh, the surface of the moon, where um, which is a geologically dead mm. object for the most part, where it's uh, heavily cratered soon after its formation, uh, four billion years ago. Or Mercury would be another example. Mm. Um, it's uh, whereas the Earth and Venus uh, and uh, certainly Io, I think, stand out as objects where uh, you do have uh, tectonic action. Io 
very, very much so. Mm. Uh, it's a bit more subtle on Venus, and it's uh, we don't have a whole lot of data on Venus, although we do have the excellent maps from the Magellan mission, for example. But in all those cases, you can see like the uh, uh, primordial cratered surfaces have largely disappeared. Uh, the fact that there's kind of like a split between heavily cratered primordial surfaces and uh, freshly formed surfaces and Enceladus uh, sounds intriguing. It is intriguing, and it's a shame that we're not going to be going back there and getting more images for a while. But there is another moon of Saturn, I can't, I can't remember which one it is, where there is a, a very definite hemisphere split in which there is geological activity, or at least the surface is smooth versus the surface is heavily cratered, and this ties in with the uh, direction that this moon moves around the planet. So mm. the, the leading edge is, is very smooth, and the trailing edge is very cratered. And you'd expect it to be the other, other way around. You'd expect the leading edge to get more impacts and be more cratered, whereas it's it's not the case at all. It's, it's actually the flip of that. Um, and the one of the explanations, possible explanations for this, is that at some point in its history, this moon has been flipped around. So it's an interesting system, and it's a shame that Cassini has to end, but all missions have a, a termination in their lifetime. All missions must come to an end, but hopefully it's good enough reason to actually go back send another robotic outpost to the Saturn system in the future. I have a brief second on an end, which is uh, I'll just talk about very briefly. It is a link to a video that I came across on Phil Plate, the Bad Astronomer's website. It's uh, made by photographers Gavin Hefferman and Haran Medinovic, and it's called Dish Dance, and they made, made it as part of a project called Skyglow, which aims to increase awareness of light pollution. And the video shows time lapses of a number of radio telescopes, mainly Green Bank and the Very Large Array in New Mexico, with some really amazing-looking skies behind them, taken during all times of the day. As of course, radio waves don't care whether it's day or night. One shot I particularly like um, shows the lifts going up and down the Green Bank telescope during what I assume to be a maintenance day. So we'll we'll place a link to this video in the show notes. It's well worth a look. Time-lapse photography is something I'd quite like to get into, but I don't have the facilities or the money to acquire the facilities. But Mike Peel, who's one of our astronomers here, has done a couple of really nice time-lapse videos of the Mach 2 and the Lovell telescopes, and they're on the um, Jodrell Bank website. So oh, go and have a look at those as well. Yeah, I knew Mike was into uh, photography, and uh, I think you can look at uh, Mike Peel's website and uh, see the uh, stuff they've done. He's also, uh, I believe, contributed stuff to Wikipedia, yeah. uh, not only text but photos as well. But I didn't know that he was uh, getting into more advanced stuff. Like time-lapse photography, that's very impressive. It is, and they're very nice time-lapses. They're only maybe 30 seconds each, so they wouldn't take much of your time to go and have a look at, but they're just so sure. Mach 2 and the the Lovell Telescope going about their business for a few seconds. So go and have a look. And now at normal speed, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for January 2016. Well, looking south in the early evening, we have this wonderful part of the sky with the constellations of Orion, Taurus, Gemini, Auriga and Canis Major. Orion holds centre stage. Its bright star, reddish-orange star, Betelgeuse at its upper left and at the lower right, Rigel, a bluish-white star. Below the three stars that make up its belt lies the Sword of Orion, which includes the lovely object the Orion Nebula, seen as a little misty reddish patch in binoculars. If you use the three stars as pointers and move upwards towards the right, you'll come to the Hyades cluster in Taurus, 
with the orange star Aldebaran, which actually lies about halfway between us and the cluster. Continuing on, you'll actually come on that beautiful cluster, open cluster called the Pleiades, lovely part of the sky. If you follow those three stars down to the left, you come to Sirius, the brightest star in the northern skies. It's the brightest star in Canis Major. Up to its left, you might spot Procyon, the really only single bright star in Canis Minor. And moving upwards towards the zenith, you come across the two bright stars, Castra and Pollux, the heads of the Hemley twins, or Gemini. Continuing further, a little bit to the right, a bright yellow star is called Capella, and that's Alpha Aurigae, the brightest star in the constellation of Riga. The Milky Way is running down through Riga, just below Gemini, and there are quite a number of rather nice open clusters that are visible. Little hazy spots, I guess, in binoculars, but very nice in a small telescope. Moving up beyond Capella, over towards the north, you'll see the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia, and between Capella and Cassiopeia, the constellation of Perseus, with its bright star Murfak. And between Cassiopeia and Perseus is a lovely little region which contains the Perseus double cluster, a very pretty pair of open clusters looking wonderful in a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter, shining at magnitude minus 2.2, rises about 8.30. You haven't got to wait up too late. And it lies low, obviously, then in southeastern Leo. It's beginning its retrograde motion. So it's beginning to move westwards across the heavens. And that starts on January the 8th. It's not that Jupiter's moving westwards. It's the fact that the Earth is moving around the sun. And it's just a, a parallax effect. By the end of the month, it'll actually rise even earlier and increase its magnitude to about minus 2.4. It'll then be due south at an elevation of about 45 degrees, around 0130, so perfect for viewing. As the Earth is moving towards Jupiter, the size of its disk increases slightly from 39 to 42.4 arc seconds. So you should easily see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes a great red spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. If you care to look at the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, I do in fact give a list of the times when the great red spot is actually facing the Earth, so best to see. Well, Saturn is now a morning object. It rises about 06.15 as the month begins, by about 04.30 by its end. It's lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, some seven degrees up and to the left of Antares in Scorpius, and close to the stars that make up the fan of Scorpius. Its diameter increases from 15.3 to 15.8 arc seconds, and the ring system spans about 35 arc seconds. It's a lovely object to look at, but sadly when it's low above the horizon as it will be this and the next few years, I'm afraid, it won't look quite as good as it did some years ago. On New Year's Day, Mercury rises at magnitude about minus 0.4, 7 degrees above the southwestern horizon, about 30 minutes after sunset. Quite bright, but you'll almost certainly use binoculars to spot it, but again, please don't use them until after the sun has set. 
Over the next week, it falls back towards the horizon with its magnitude dropping rapidly, so really will be increasingly difficult to spot. It's actually passing through inferior conjunction with the sun on January the 14th, and I guess it might just be possible to spot in the east before dawn at the very end of the month at magnitude 0.0. Interestingly, at its next inferior junction, that's the one after this one, on May the 9th, it will be seen, if clear, we hope, to transit across the face of the sun. Its first transit, in fact, for, for 10 years. And I can remember, 10 years ago, standing on our front step at home, projecting an image of the sun onto a white card with a pair of binoculars, and actually seeing a little black dot on the face of the sun. Not a sunspot this time, it was Mercury. Mars is moving eastwards relative to the stars, starts the month in Virgo, six degrees from Spica, but moves into Libra mid-month. The brightness is increasing slightly from plus 1.3 to plus 0.8. And as it does so, the disk increases in size from 5.6 to 6.8 arc seconds. It rises at about 01.30 on New Year's Day, and about half an hour earlier by the end of the month and it will lie just 1.3 degrees north of the double star Alpha Libri. So now, given really good seeing, that means the, the sky isn't very turbulent, some details on the surface, such as Certis Major and the polar caps, may be becoming visible with a telescope. We'll see it far better in opposition in May, when it will appear about three times wider. Venus rises about three hours before the sun as January begins, but as it moves nearer the sun, it'll only be two hours earlier at the end of the month. It starts January about one degree from Beta Scorpii. It moves quickly into Sagittarius, passing close to the Triffid Nebula, that's M20, on the 24th, and reaches the handle of the teapot by February. Its angular size reduces from 14 to 12 arc seconds, as it does so, the percentage of the disk which is illuminated increases from 77 to 85%. As a result, the brightness hardly changes at magnitude minus 4. So what about January's highlights? Well, it's a second really good month to view Jupiter. It's lying in southern Leo, but still reasonably high in the ecliptic, so when due south is at an elevation of 45 degrees. Is looking somewhat different than in the last few years, as the North Equatorial Belt, which disappeared for a while, has become quite broad. The Great Red Spot, a pale shaded pink, can easily be seen, and on the night sky page I try tell you when it should be facing the Earth. It appears to be shrinking in size. It really has done over the last few years. We'll just have to watch and see what happens. And there is a diagram on the night sky page giving you the main Jovian features. Well, last month I mentioned Comet Catalina, which reached Arcturus by the end of the month. So now it's actually moving into our northern skies. It's just, we suspect, reaching unaided eye visibility. But to be honest, the use of binoculars or a small telescope would be better. It starts the month just above the bright star Arcturus in Brutus and tracks northward until at month's end it passes through the handle of the plough in Ursa Major. And again, I give a chart on the Night Sky page showing where it is. Um, I would say if you have an Android tablet or perhaps an Apple Mac, you can buy 
A program called Sky Safari Plus costs about £10. And if you're linked to the interweb, it will automatically download the orbital elements of interesting comets and it will show you exactly where they are on any particular day you care to ask. And that's in fact how I was able to prepare the chart that appears on the night sky page. Well, some little groupings of planets and the moon. On January the 2nd and 3rd, we can see Mars close to the moon. About 6am on the mornings of the 2nd and 3rd, Mars will be seen close to a waning crescent moon. On one side on the first day, on the other on the 2nd. But we have a nice conjunction on January the 9th. About one hour before dawn, Saturn and Venus will be just a few arc minutes apart, basically six arc minutes. Venus will be 60 times brighter at magnitude minus 4 than Saturn at magnitude plus 0.5. But just find Venus, that will be easy, and very, very close. In the same field of view with binoculars or a small telescope, you'll also find Saturn. Interestingly, they both have very similar angular diameters. 14 for Venus, 15 for Saturn. But of course, <laughs> you've also got the lovely rings of Saturn, about 35 arc seconds across. Below Saturn is the star Antares, seven degrees down to their right, and Saturn will still be noticeably brighter than Antares. On the 19th of January, a gibbous moon crosses and passes through the Hyades cluster. In the evening of the 19th, the moon, if clear, will be seen just to the right of the Hyades cluster, but during the following evening and night, it moves through it and across it, and by 4 a.m. the following morning, it'll lie very close to Aldebaran. In fact, a little later, in North America, one will see Aldebaran occulted by the moon. On the 28th of January, a gibbous moon passes below Jupiter. So if it's clear, you can see Jupiter as it lies in the southern part of Leo, close about four moon diameters apart, from a waxing gibbous moon. I usually have a little spot on the night sky page about some things to look at on the lunar surface. And this month I described two great lunar craters. They are Tycho and Copernicus. The best night to observe them is on the 18th because that's when the terminator is close to both of them and the detail shows up very well. Tycho is in a densely cratered area called the Lunar Southern Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old, and thought to be informed by the impact of one of the remnants of an asteroid that gave right to the asteroid Baptistina. It broke up into various bits. Another asteroid, originating from the same breakup, may well have caused the Chipslug crater, that's one of the largest in the Yucatan Peninsula of, of Mexico, and that was some 65 million years ago, which may have helped the demise of the dinosaurs. At full moon, the rays of material that rejected when it was formed can be seen arcing right the way across the lunar surface. On the other hand, Copernicus is about 800 million years old. It lies in the eastern Oceanus Procolarum, beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It's 93 kilometers wide and nearly 4 kilometers deep, and is a classic terraced crater, and both can be easily seen in binoculars and look beautiful in a small telescope. So I do wish you do have some clear nights in January 
and can see some of these things. Thanks for that, Ian. And now, for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogashanu with The Night Sky Where You Are. Clear skies from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu, and tonight I am your storyteller from the Southern Hemisphere. Welcome to January 2016 and congratulations for another arbitrary rotation around the Sun. The name January, Januarie, originates from the ancient Indo-European Thracian god Jana, Janus, my favorite of all gods of the ancients. Names such as Diana, Jana, Ion, John, Jean, Johan, Iwana, Anna, Johanna, Jeanne have originated from Janus. Made famous by the Romans, Janus the god with two faces was celebrated at the coldest time of the year, not the winter solstice, which marks the shortest day of the year on the 22nd or 23rd of December, but a couple of weeks later. As heat stored in the ground gradually leaks out, the coldest weather in the Northern Hemisphere is in January and not in December, thus after the shortest day. The celebration of Janus is now superimposed on the Christian day of Saint John. Janus was the god of passages, gates, transitions, beginnings and ends. Sharing the same particle and pronunciation, Io, the Maori Io Matua Tecore, also known as Io, it's the supreme deity, the original life force of the universe, the parentless of the beginning and the parent of Tecore, the potential. In ancient Indo-European languages, Io also means I. Janus Io, it's very easy to spot on the sky. Just look at the bright round ones, the sun or the moon. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, January, it's the month when we can also see the other shining ones. Milky Way, which is the pride and joy of the Southern Hemisphere compared to the month of July, is now almost hidden from our sight. In Te Raumati, summertime, voyaging waka of Māori were greeted upon their arrival to Aotearoa by the blooming of the Pohutukawa trees at day and the bright stars adorning the night sky. The Milky Way is in the eastern sky, brightest in the southeast towards Crooks. It can be traced towards the north but becomes faint below Orion. Binoculars show many star clusters and a few glowing gas clouds in the Milky Way, particularly in the Carina region. The Milky Way is faint left or north of Orion because we are looking towards its thin outer edge. 180 degrees on the opposite side of Orion, the Milky Center of our galaxy now lays behind the Sun. The regions in Scorpius and Sagittarius which hold the galactic bulge are hidden in the solar haze. This is the zenith of summertime. This time of the year, Tamanui Terra, the sun, travels high in the sky with his summer wife, Hine Raumati. At dusk, his winter wife, 
Hineta Kurwa, Sirius, rests lonely in the eastern sky. Shining as the brightest star, throughout the night Takurwa Sirius is slowly climbing into darkness, longing for her husband. With her, standing higher than any of the shining ones, is radiant Atutahi Canopus. Canopus, luminous and distant, is the second brightest star of the sky. Circumpolar star, he always can see all the others which make him a great chief of the stars. Te Ariki Itonga Itarewa, Ke Alii Okona Ikalewa, the chief reason in the south. Left of Takurua Sirius, as the sky darkens its Tautoru, the tree resting Orion's belt, Alnilam, Alnitak, and Mintaka the later one positioned exactly on the celestial equator. Mintaka is the star that always rises exactly due east and sets due west. Below Tautoru, Putara Betelgeuse shines red giant glimmers. Above Tautoru, Puanga Rigel is glistening in blue. To Kiwis, Tautoru also makes the bottom of the pot. Tafiti the bird catcher draws a line from Takurua across Tautoru to Taumatakuku, the wood pigeon's mountain peak, the Hyades star cluster. To signal, it's the time when pigeons are good to eat. At the bottom of the mountain peak, bright Matakaheru Aldebaran, visually on the line of sight, is half the cluster's distance. Left again towards north and lower, the Tafiti, the Shining Ones, the Pleiades star cluster, forms the noose of the bird catcher. Opposite and low in the south is the Punga, the anchor, Southern Cross. Its pointers, Beta and Alpha Centauri, are the rope of the anchor. Alpha Centauri is the closest naked eye star, 4.3 light years away. The flounder, Tirua Patiki, the pit of Patiki, hides in the coal sack nestled in Tepunga. Circumpolar from Wellington, the clouds of Magellan, large Magellanic cloud, two Putuputu and small Magellanic cloud, Ti Katakata, are high in the southern sky and easily seen by eye on a dark moonless night. They are two small galaxies about 160,000 and 200,000 light years away. The brightest stars sparkle like diamonds in the sky here in New Zealand. This time of the year, in any clear night, one can see Sirius, the dog star, the brightest star in the sky, Canopus, the cat star, the second brightest star in the sky, and Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in the sky. Alpha Centauri is also our closest neighbor. Facing south, after nightfall, from left to right, arched high across the sky, are Canopus, the large Magellanic Cloud, and the small Magellanic Cloud. More bright objects are in the morning sky or the late night. Jupiter rises due east before 1 a.m. at the beginning of the month. It is a very bright golden star shining with a steady light. 
By the end of January, Jupiter will be up after 10.30. The disk of Jupiter is seen in a small telescope with its four Galilean moons lined up on each side like stars, changing positions from night to night. Jupiter is 720 million kilometers away in month. Brilliant Venus rises after 3.30 a.m. through the month, up about two and a half hours before the sun. It is the brightest star in the sky by far. While Venus stays put, the stars and the other planets creep higher and westward through the month. At the beginning of the month, Saturn is below and right of Venus, looking like a bright creamy white star. Around January 9-10, Saturn will make a close pairing with Venus, a conjunction as it passes the brighter planet. Mars is midway between Jupiter and Saturn, a medium brightness orange star. Even with the most of the Milky Way hidden from the side, if you are after deep sky targets, there are plenty of those around. One of my personal favorites, the Open Star Cluster NGC 2244 or the Rosette Nebula in Cheros will be well placed for observation. It will reach its highest point in the sky in Wellington around midnight local time, but will be visible all night. Look for the bright red giant Betelgeuse and then search to the right for the elusive Monoceros, the unicorn. The unicorns are hard to see with the naked eye and especially this one as it only has a few fourth magnitude stars. Inside it, Beta Monocerotis is an impressive triple star system, forming a triangle described by William Herschel, who discovered it in 1781 to be one of the most beautiful sights in the heavens. A few great Messier targets are the spectacular M42 and the Sword of Orion, a place where stars are born, M1, the Crab Nebula, and Messier 35 at the foot of the Divine Twin Pollux. M1, or Messier 1, made its mark on the sky in the year 1054 AD, when it became a supernova, blowing itself completely apart. The phenomenon was visible during daylight for about three weeks. According to ancient Chinese chronicles, the light coming from it was at least several times brighter than the light from Venus, and the remnant could be seen with the naked eye for almost two years before fading out of sight. Located within the horns of Taurus, the bull, today M1 is a beautiful, intricate, irregularly oval-shaped cloud which can be observed with telescopes of 6-inch aperture or higher. The nebula's resemblance to a telescopic comet inspired French astronomer and comet hunter Charles Messier to compile his celebrated catalogue of fuzzy objects that look like comets but are not, so that other comet hunters might avoid them. The first on his list, Crab Nebula, it's today known as Messier 1. Interestingly, 
the 1054 supernova was considered by the Christian Orthodox and Catholic churches as the divine sign invoked for the great rapture between the two, also known as the Great Schism. There are many fuzzy Messier-like objects in the southern sky, but they were not named as such since Messier could not see them from France, being circumpolar to this part of the world. Another one of my personal favorites, 47 Tucane Globular Cluster, is high in the sky, located in the birdie constellation of the Tucan. 47 Tucane, NGC 104, or just 47 Tuck. It's about 16,700 light years away from Earth and it's 120 light years across. It can be seen with the naked eye, it's a fuzzy smidge, and it has a visual apparent magnitude of 4.9. Under a very dark sky like we have here in New Zealand, it can appear roughly the size of the full moon. For those of you who like spiders, Tarantula Nebula is another breathtaking sight, but it takes patience to see it looking with your eye through a telescope. The trick in stargazing is to use your peripheral vision and let your eyes adjust to the dark. Tarantula is one of those objects where both of these are needed as well as a grand telescope, but it pays off, but it works even better if you have a camera attached to the telescope. I was walking home from the observatory late night a week ago and noticed that Corvus, one of my favorite constellations, was in the sky. I always thought of Corvus as the harbinger of Scorpius and it fills my heart with joy seeing it every time because I know that not long from now that beautiful galactic center will be up once more. This concludes our Jotcast for January 2016 at Space Place at Carter Observatory. As the Maori say, The stars are shining in the sky. Whilst Mother Earth lays beneath. May you enjoy the beginning of another happy rotation around the sun. Kiakaha and clear skies from Wellington here in the Southern Hemisphere. Thanks for that, Haratina. And now, on to the feedback. George. Well, we have... No posts, but we have uh, some messages from Facebook. Kittrick Sonison says, Jod on from the other side of the planet. And Steve Lawrence says, I've been a regular listener for a long time, but the December 2015 Extra Edition, in my opinion, was the best episode ever. The perfect storm of interesting subject matter combined with two of the best guest speakers ever. Keep it up and a happy new year to you all. P.S. You will note that I refrained from mentioning cold dark matter and porridge this time. Jod on. Uh, well, Steve, Fiona's not here, so you're quite safe to mention porridge and dark matter if you choose to. Um, but thanks very much for your comments. The December 
Extra was an incredibly difficult show to put out um, because Christmas gets in the way of everything, but it's comments like that that make it actually worth doing. So thank you. Uh, from Twitter, we have Malcontent uh, says, thanks for a great year of podcasts. Looking forward to next year's offerings. And uh, we also uh, say hi to our new followers. And thanks for all the retweets, favorites, and follow Fridays. You can also find us on iTunes. Please rate us and consider leaving us a review. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Judith Croston for the interview. The editors were Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. And we'd like to wish all our listeners a very happy 2016 from the Jodcast. Until next time, Jod Jod on. on! Thank you.